God, I love you so much. I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for a chance, uh, Lord, to come together. Lord, to come together from a, just as a people from all over the place, not just geographically, but also just with kind of life experience and, and perspectives and philosophy and even belief. God, but today I pray that right now in our heart of hearts, that we would come in here and in a, in a, in a supernatural way, meaning that maybe you even bend our will towards this, that we would incline our will to yours, that we would submit our understanding to yours, God, that we, would un- that we would come to see in this time that your truth is the truth and that your truth is good. And so we submit our- ourselves to the teaching in your word. We submit ourselves to the teaching of those that we're, that we're learning from today, namely Jesus. And Lord, I pray that your work will be complete, Lord, that we would be transformed so that your church could be a part of glorifying you and reaching people in this world. So we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If you can, go ahead, open your Bibles, click on your apps to Matthew 6. We're going to start in verse 1 today. If you don't have a Bible or an app, look underneath you, around a chair near you. There are some Bibles there. Uh, Feel free to use that. And if you don't have a Bible and need one or just want a paper one, feel free to take that one. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have that. So while you're turning there, I just want to review a few quick things. And again, if you're here a lot, like it's just starting to sound a little bit repetitive, but it's good because we just need to remember context matters. And we want to come into our teaching today with momentum, with, a, with kind of, again, the, the background to what's happening of how we got here. So we are teaching through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been doing that since September. Uh, this is, again, Jesus' first and longest sermon recorded in Scripture. It's straight from his mouth, so I hope it matters. Um, and... and just to kind of summarize, uh, maybe quickly, uh, what's been covered so far as Jesus has been teaching. I, I like how this, this really smart guy, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mean, you know if you've got four names, you know, you've got, you, you're, you're important. So he's got four names. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love how he summarized this. He says, you know, first we have in verses 3 through 12, which we call the Beatitudes. We have just the description, which is first and foremost of Christ, and then also, therefore, is the description of the people of God, of those who are in Christ, because, in, again, we are in Christ, so he, we, we, are, we are given his attributes. So it's a description of Christ and those who are in Christ. Then we have verses 13 through 16. It is, it is the picture of the Christ follower reacting to the world and the, and the world reacting to the Christ follower. And then in verses 17 through 48, deals with the relationship of the Christ follower to the law of God, meaning the Old Testament that we have, Psalms, the prophets, and the law. Uh, it's, the, it's, our, it's our interaction, our relation to the law of God, and it's done through a positive exposition, a teaching toward it, uh, but it's done by contrasting uh, the right understanding with the, the wrong uh, Pharisaic teaching that had been going on uh, for the people of, of Judaism at the time. Uh, so that brings us to where we're at. And as we came to the end of that section we just mentioned, it culminates with this, this crazy exhortation. In chapter, in chapter 5, verse 48, it says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And man, the Bible is supposed to be good news, and that doesn't sound, I mean, if you really think about it, that's not good news. Like, that's, that's a little heavy. Like, it's, it's kind of stated in this, in this pace to where when you read it, you're like, okay, this is like, this is the climax. This is the clincher. This brings it all together. You're like, but wait, 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 wait. I'm supposed to, like, know what to do with that. And so luckily, Jesus keeps teaching. 
And so he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that statement brings us into this kind of this new section that begins in chapter 6 and continues all the way through chapter 6, which will take, I think, three weeks to cover. Um, And so thinking about, you know, we're talking about what what has been this chapter 6 brings us into the expression of the spirit or the experience of the spiritual life of the Christ follower. So you're sitting here, maybe you've been sitting here, and you're like, you know, n- none of those categories you just said described me. Like, I, I can't even really say I'm a Christ follower. I'm a Christian. I don't, I don't really know. And so, like, well, how am, is this, this is message for me? And I'll just say this message is for all of us, of course, because God's work is for all of us. But it even applies, and we'll see as we get to the end, there is a promise for all. Okay, so even if you think maybe this doesn't apply to you yet, just hang in there and listen and you will see. Um, So but this section as we come into is, again, teaching, speaking about the spiritual life of those who are in relationship with God in Christ, the spiritual life of the Christian. What do I mean by that? It's the life lived in the presence of God, the life that is lived dependent on God, the life that is expressed in active submission to God. So again, it's very personal, it's internal is what we're seeing. So let's just get right to our text today, all right? We're going to start with Matthew 6. We're just going to read the first verse, Matthew 6, 1. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Let's just read that again because it's one verse. Beware, beware, how do you say that? Beware or beware? I don't know. Sorry. Um, I drink a cup of coffee and usually I eat a protein bar beforehand to level me out. And I forgot my protein bar this morning, so just hang on. So, And I've got medicine head, so it's good. Beware. I can never say that word the same again. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So as we come to this verse, and again, it's following that, that, that crazy charge to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, it's this, it's this imperative word of warning. An imperative is something which is true, must be responded to, it is unignorable. So it's this imperative warning that sets us up for the rest of our text today. And really, it kind of lays out the whole structure, and we'll see that in a second. So as we, as we move past this warning, in just a minute, we'll see that Jesus gives this imperative warning, that this, this, this word of instruction to set up what he's about to teach. And then, and then he goes on in the structure. The way that he goes on to teach about this is that he, he highlights three acts of the, the highest expression, the highest act of piety that the Jewish people can participate in. And as he does this, he's not saying that these are the only ones that matter, but he draws on these because, again, these are the ones that are held in highest esteem, but he's doing it as an example for all the ways in which we can show our righteousness and all the ways in which our faith in Christ, our relationship with the Heavenly Father, is expressed and lived out in our world. And so he goes on, he, first he talks about giving to the needy is one of the acts, the other one is praying, and the last is fasting. So each act also is taught in the exact same structure. It comes with a warning, an exhortation, a teaching to that warning, and then a promise to clinch it all together. Each each section also says, don't give, don't pray, and don't fast as the hypocrites do. And now maybe I made this question easy to answer. But what's one of the most common criticisms of the church of church, of Christians. What's one of the most common criticisms? They're hypocrites. Just a bunch of hypocrites. 
And, and so, you know, I mean, hopefully this immediately strikes a chord and makes you think maybe this matters because Jesus is saying, don't be a hypocrite. The world says the church is a hypocrite, and I would agree that many of us, many of the church, many churches are hypocritical. Spurgeon, one of my favorites, said, hey, if you find the perfect church, don't go to it because you'll ruin it. You know, like, so he's like, there's, but definitions matter when we think about this because, you know, we think about hypocrisy and and that's where we go to. And again, it's following that, that thought of being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and don't be a hypocrite. And really when the world is saying that the that the church is a hypocrite, by and large, what they're saying is that, hey, you say you're a Christian, but I've seen you do something that, that I know that Christians aren't supposed to do. And all of a sudden, so really what they're saying, I've seen you in your imperfection. Uh, and, and is that a hypocrite? Is that hypocritical necessarily? You know, I mean, if it, if it was to avoid hypocrisy, you know, means that we have to be perfect, means that that, that X word, that, that, that charge, verse, you know, 548, it, it's, it's cruel, and it's, and it's contradictive, and it's pointless to be there. But God speaks it as a promise and a command and an exhortation to his people. So we know hypocrisy is not perfection. None are perfect. None can be. So building some tension for the day, building some question for the day, how are we going to reconcile all of this? Let me just give a little, little fun little thing to hang on to. To be human is not to be a hypocrite. I mean, that's, that's a wonderful freedom for those who are in Christ. We're still human. We're still in the flesh. That's not to be a hypocrite. Again, let's, let's unwrap that. So we see that calls not necessarily perfection, but by... Jesus' own admonition, and hopefully our desire, we don't want to be hypocrites. Jesus doesn't want us to be hypocrites. So how can we avoid that? Let's quickly read through the three sections here, three, the three acts of piety that Jesus uses as an example. Because really, we're, kinda, we're building the form, and then we're going to kind of unpack it as we go. So we're going to read all of our verses here, minus a few. So let's start in Matthew 6, 2, following that, that warning uh, from Jesus and that, that, that compelling that he gave his people, us. So here we go. It says, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, and that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will, will reward you. And right now we're going to skip verses 7 through 15, which is a section of scripture a lot of us know as the Lord's Prayer. We're going to come back to that next week and talk about what is prayer, why we pray. We're going to take a little caveat as we look through that. So hang on to that. It's, about, it's a little caveat that Jesus takes himself, so we'll kind of follow his form. So then we're going to skip to verse 16 here. This is his last example. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. 
Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So as we look through those passages and those sections, like there's obviously, I know some like kind of technical questions that we could kind of talk about. Like what did he mean by blowing the trumpet? Was he literally like were the Pharisees walking through the streets, blowing a trumpet, putting it in the, putting it in the box? Probably not. It's probably more figurative. It's probably a, a wordplay. There were, there were boxes to receive offering at the time uh, that, that were shaped kind of like a trumpet to prevent people from sticking their hands in and stealing stuff. So it was wide at the top, got narrow. It's more of a wordplay, like just but it's more about drawing attention or, or kind of like, you know, is this prescriptive to go into your closet and pray or like are, if we fast, are we supposed to look nicer than when we're not fasting? Like those are honestly, they're helpful, but they're distractions. That's not the biggest point that we need to walk away with today. Um, if you want to talk about those more, we can. Let's get coffee or come by the office, okay? But we're going to talk about the kind of the more foundational things, and hopefully that'll kind of bring some clarity into maybe some of those questions that you have about that. So the first thing that we have to see in, in order to not be hypocritical as those who are in Christ, those who are the people of God, is that we need to have an active faith. Okay, so where does that come from? Well, Jesus is giving them this warning. He says, hey, be- beware. You know, you know, he says, beware of practicing your righteousness, doing righteousness. Beware of practicing it before others for the sake of them seeing, basically. But he, doesn't, but he doesn't say stop doing them. Notice each section starts with, and when you. When you give to the needy, when you pray. When you fast, there is an assumption, there is, a, there is a, even a, a command in, in that statement that you would participate in the things that mark those who are in Christ, the acts of faithfulness, the acts of righteousness, so that you would have an active faith from, from the, these things to, the, to again, that you're, that you're generous, that you're sacrificial, that you're prayerful, that you are kind, that you're loving, that you're intentional. Like all, again, all these things that you share your faith, that you, I mean, again, just anything that you think of as a mark that is given as a mark of those who are in Christ, it should be an active expression in our life. It should be something that we actively and willfully set our lives towards. He didn't abolish these acts of piety. You know, when we think about this whole, like, what is our salvation? What secures our atonement? What secures our salvation? And, and, and maybe you have, maybe you haven't heard of, of this kind of these two sides in the, the church that it's by faith alone or it's by works. And I say, the, I'll say this, and that comes kind of from Paul's teaching and James' teaching. In James 2.17, he says, so also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Well, does that mean that your works save you? No. And I, I love kind of the, the, reform, the reform statement. It says, you know, that we're saved, we're saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. And I believe that 100%. That is our salvation. But I love some, someone along the way added, but we are saved to a faith that does not remain alone. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But if, it's a, if that is a true belief, if it's a true surrender, it will result in a life expressing the works of God. Building, building blocks. 
we'll unpack that. We'll, we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. So remember, as we look at these, these acts of piety, they're representative acts. And, they're, and they're, they're representative acts for us for all the areas of faithfulness. Our lives should be marked by a consistent participation in the will and way of God. This is in our obedient lives, and it's in our work of doing the ministry of his kingdom work. So that's the first step to avoid hypocrisy. It, it, is, it is disingenuine. It doesn't make sense for, for there not to be an expression of who you are resulting in the fruit of your life. And I don't know if this illustration fits here. I thought about it in a week, and I really didn't have it in my notes. And we'll put it here, and I'll probably end up saying, oh, you know, we'll talk about that more in a minute. But I was just trying to think through this concept. And, and do you all know who Andrea Bocelli is? Great, great singer. Can anybody sing his song for us, please? Just kidding. But he's, he's a, I mean, like, amazing singer. Nobody finds it weird that um, Andrea Bocelli doesn't design beautiful buildings. Nobody doesn't think it's weird that Andrea Bocelli doesn't spend all his time, I don't know, I mean, counseling psychiatric needs. I don't know, whatever. I mean, now, what if Andrea Bocelli, people knowing of his giftedness, what if he didn't sing? What if he didn't use that gift? People would all of a sudden be like, it's a crime that he is not sharing that gift with the world. I say that about my wife with many things. She should paint more. She should sing more. She should dance more. I mean, she's got all sorts of talents that are way unexpressed, and it's a crime for her not to share them with the world. So, but it's kind of like, it is such a part of who we understand him to be. It is such a natural expression of what we know about Andrea Bocelli that it, we don't care about the things that he doesn't do that we don't really care, that, we, that aren't a part of him, but because we know him as this profoundly amazing singer, if he were to stop and just be a, re, and just to, uh, you know, pull that away from the world, there would be, I mean, you would see a headline. It's a, you, know, you would hear this bombastic statement. It's a crime that he would keep that from the world. And that's because we understand that there is a natural expression connected to who we are, to how we have been created and the gifts that we've been given. You know, and so, again, that's an earthly example. Now, think about the life that has been transformed and made new in Christ, where you're not just, not just that you are saved, but that you are changed, that you are given a new destination, a new hope, a new way of thinking, a new way of understanding, a new way of seeing. That's where the world cries out, hypocrite. When they don't, it's not just what you do, it's what we don't do. And so it's almost like it's a crime for it not to, be, not to be exhibited. It's a crime for it not to be expressed. And so it's, it's, I, I, I hope that kind of came to fruition. But I love that idea. Like it is just, for those who are in Christ, it is a natural, it's, what is this? this is a call to a natural expression. Don't deny who you are in Christ. Don't deny who he is in you. So we may have, we, I'll probably end up saying, like I said, um, but that's, I hope that, again, like, it just starts to pull some of the confusion away and maybe even kind of breathe some life into this heaviness that we often feel when it comes to being obedient and to, again, being righteous and being perfect, <laughs> you know? And so 
as we, but as we think about this first step of avoiding hypocrisy is to be active, it, it sounds a little tenuous. It sounds a little, a little, a little dangerous. Because, it, it, you know, it, it seems like it could be easily faked or, or at least legalism. You know, and, and thinking back to my, this illustration, you know, I, 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 I mean, I think about, like, my golf game. I have nice bag, nice clubs, nice shoes, nice shorts, tuck it in with a belt, you know, belt and shoes match, and a nice visor or hat. I don't wear a visor anymore. Ever since I got rid of my blonde tips in 1996, I don't wear a visor anymore. But I walk out to the course, and, you know, and I look like a golfer. And I get up to the ball. I look like a golfer. <laughs> I swing. I don't like a golfer anymore. But, uh, but you know, I, I can look like a golfer, but that doesn't necessarily make me a golfer. And so, yeah, like, we, we think, okay, it could be faked, but a golfer is a golfer. Like, it's just in them. You can't, you can't teach it. It's born with it. And, uh, and so, again, like, thinking about we have the suspicion that it can be faked because it can. You, you've done it, and you know people that do it. Like the, when we're talking about these acts, this act of righteousness, the living out your righteousness, like we, it can be faked, but yet when it's a part of you, there's just something different. You notice it. You know it. So we're digging deeper, okay? We're starting at the surface. We're going down. So how do we make sure the living of our lives as Christians is pleasing and acceptable to God? How do we make sure that these, this active life, this expressive life of righteousness is not hypocritical? We see the mistakes made by many in, by many in Jesus' examples. Again, he points them out. He points out the charitable gift was made to be noticed by others. They made sure that people saw, you know, I mean, like maybe for us in here, it would be that as you're walking out, you accidentally knock the basket out of someone's hand at the door, and then you're like, oh, I don't know if I noticed this. I'm just kidding. But things I play out in my head. Um, but, you know, they made sure to be noticed. He's pointing that out like it was, it was so that they would be noticed. He points out that the prayer was long, and it was loud, and it was full of big religious words that were totally unnecessary to be noticed by others. He points out the fasting when they fast. And if you don't know what fasting is, traditionally it's the denying of self of, of food for a period of time as, a, as an expression of righteousness to seek God, to also most often connected with repenting of sin or calling a people to repentance. But it's this I, and, and so imagine going without food. I mean, some of us are hard if our lunch is at 1 o'clock. You know, so imagine like if it's a day, but 40 days is a common fast. So he's saying that when they fast, he's like, they, they fasted and, they, and they, they, they made their faces all just down and forlorn and woe is me. And they made sure that they looked disheveled and they were just moping around so that people would ask so that they could say, oh, I'm fasting. Look at me for them once again. These are good things. Again, he says, when you do them. So what's up? We see that it's not just what we do. But it's why we do it. It's where we're getting at. What were the motives of these Jesus were referencing? What were the motives of these in his examples? You heard it. We talk a lot about the misguided work that we often fall, fall into of trying to earn the favor of God. 
in our acts of righteousness. That's something we talk about a lot. It centers around the gospel a lot, the gospel of grace. We would call that, we would call that kind of righteousness, that kind of work, a merit righteousness, trying to earn the favor. This is a destructive, this is, this is destructive because it leads us away and, and it even denies the glorious work of grace in Christ. And that's, so merit righteousness is destructive. We are given the righteousness of Christ when we, when we believe and surrender. When God looks on us, he sees the perfection of his son, not our sin. God made that possible. So we deny that when we work to earn. But that's not what this is talking about. It's not a merit righteousness. This is something else. I would call it ostentation. The word ostentatious, it's defined by characterized by vulgar or pretentious display designed designed to impress or attract notice. So the goal for these people, the goal for those that Jesus is using as an example, was not to earn the favor of God. That seems a little bit applaudable, although still misguided and misaimed. They, who do they desire the praise of? Who do they desire? And who do they desire the praise of? People around them. Man. They They desired to impress by glorifying themselves. They wanted the favor of man and not of God. So this is the key that keeps this teaching here from contradicting with what Jesus taught earlier in, uh, earlier in his sermon. We see it in 5.16. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. That's how here where he's saying, make sure people see your works, and then here he's saying, make sure people don't see your works. That's how we bring them together. That's how we understand these not to contradict. What we see here is that God will give us the exact reward that we seek. In one instance, you're living out your light, you're living out your works before man for the glory of God to point people to his reality, to his way, to his promise, to his love, to his kindness, to his grace. In the other way, you're pointing to yourself so that people will applaud you and say, well done, man, that guy. All respect goes to you. All glory goes to you. All, 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 all goes to you. Write that one down so you know what I meant. Um, all, all goes to you. So the question we're left with, I, it's just a simple question, but it's a good one to ask. Like, do we seek man's reward or God's reward more? When you want to check your motives, when it's not just the what you do, but the why you do, it's a question of motive, and you can just stop and just prayerfully say, God, who do I care about more in this moment? You're faced with the decision. Who would I rather please? Whose accolades would I rather receive? Who, who would I rather find my loyalties fall to? A heavenly Father who made a way for you. To know life, to know love, to know salvation, to know his glory. Or those, I mean, what does their reward do for you? It dies with this world. It's nice. I like it. I love being liked. I live, I mean, in my, like, God has been wrecking me over this recently. Like, I've always known that I was a pleaser, but just recently he's just been over and over again, like, he's, Listen, you're not just a pleaser. Like, you live for the praise of man. And it's just been all up in my face about it. And, and I'm, so pray for me. Like, I'm, imagine, I mean, I'm in a pretty precarious job to have that be the thing I deal with. I mean, I'm in front of you guys. And anyway, so pray for that and, you know, help me out, you know, 
be the instruments of the Lord kindly, please. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I, who's, whose reward matters more? Like, when you really get honest. And so it, it matters. Like, our motive matters, and our motive should be centered on who it glorifies. See, there's only one righteousness. It belongs to God. There really is. There's only one righteousness, and it belongs to God. True righteousness originates in our sovereign creator, God. See, that righteousness, it is the very character of God. And therefore, it only po- should only point to Him. And in doing that, it glorifies Him alone. When all of a sudden our acts of righteousness are point to ourself, it's, it's honestly bastardizing that righteousness. I love what D.A. Carson said. He says, to attempt to live in accord with this righteousness spelled out in the preceding verses, but out of motive eager for men's applause, is to prostitute that righteousness. You're taking it, making it yours, which is not. So we're to be active in our faith, but why we do matters before what we do. And that motive is determined by who we desire to receive the glory. So the warning is don't be a hypocrite. The exhortation is to do what you do for the right reason, for the glory of God. So we said that this was the form. Warning, exhortation, promise. Right? Each one's following that form. So what's our promise? The promise is wrapped up in the summary statement we see in each section, in each of these verses. It's verses 4, 6, and 18, and it's this statement. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. But that's the promise. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When I'm, when I'm honest with myself, and I don't just try to, try to, you know, make sure that I, I understand. And like, I, you know, you just kind of feel like you have to hide your insecurities from God. You, have to feel, you feel like you have to hide your unknowing from God. When I'm honest and I read this, it sounds a little tricky to me. It's like, okay, if I, if I kind of unpack, if I kind of back up, pack, unpack everything, it's like, do it, but don't be seen, but be seen. You know, and it's like, okay, um... So how do we make sense of this? And and it comes to this question for me. What does it mean when it says our Father who is in secret, which it says before these verses we just pointed out, and sees in secret? Our Father who is in secret and sees in secret. What does that mean, which is in these texts? It's an important question, and the answer is the key or the secret, if you will. I was excited about that when I typed it in because it's bringing the word secret back, but... I knew, it was, I knew it was too subtle when I wrote it, and I was like, but I'm still going to, anyway, I love the rice roll. They always laugh. It's good. Um, thank you, guys. Oh, so funny. Um, <coughs> excuse me. But again, this understanding of this question will, is the key to understanding the promise. So this is an important question. So we, first we come to this, is when it says, that in secret, our Father who is in secret we see that it's speaking of God being our eternal God who is in heaven, the transcendent God. Our etern- as he is in heaven, he is there securing, holding our eternal place 
with him, our eternal place of hope, our eternal place of glory. Now, just a reminder, as we teach, we look at the Sermon on the Mount, it is the message of the kingdom of heaven. And as it talks, and as we've built that foundation, now we're moving in the way that we live, really what all that Jesus is doing is showing what life in the kingdom of God looks like, life in the kingdom, living as citizens of the kingdom, living those who are under the rule and reign of a glorious, sovereign, worthy God, and also a, a, a loving, kind, heavenly Father. So once again, so we see that, but we see this transcendent God, and we see that the God who is in secret is speaking to hope, it is speaking to his worthiness, it is speaking to the fact that our lives belong to him. He is there, there is hope in that statement. That's part of the promise. He is not some limited God, he is not some removed God, and we'll see that in a second. We can leave it at that, and he would be a removed God, an impersonal God. But it goes beyond that thankfully. So he, he sees, he is in secret, he is in heaven, we, and, and, and we, we're seeing that we are given this identity of living as citizens in this present and future kingdom. And, and, and you know, maybe that's a familiar word, maybe it's not. So just quickly, when we think about the word kingdom, we're talking about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We're talking about the place that God dwells and reigns. Okay, that doesn't help. So we're talking about the place where all he is and is intended is expressed. Okay, so for now, when we say it's an already not yet kingdom, it is, it is a kingdom for the here and now and a kingdom yet to be fulfilled. Here, we see the will and way, the presence, the expression of God in the church, the people of God, those made new, because in that we are his image, image, bear, his image bearers. As we live out this way of life, we show the kingdom norms. In our world, we have social mores. We have social norms. We have just what's expected, what's accepted, what's not. When we do this, we're actually giving people a picture of the kingdom, the kingdom culture, if you will. And so, again, we're making it real. And as we live obedient lives, living out God's commands, which God's commands express his, right, his character, just as I said about his righteousness, we are giving pe people a picture of God. And so, again, where God is, where all he intended is expressed here in the now in an imperfect way through the people of God, because we are chosen, set apart for his holy purpose. That's what it is to be sanctified. When we think about the future, when we say the, the kingdom that is yet to come, when Christ comes back and restores his church, all is made new. All death, all tears are wiped away. There is no more sickness, no more pain. All is restored. Perfect fellowship and unity. So if you're wondering what the kingdom is, again, I know that it's still, I mean, if it's totally unfamiliar, that probably helped a tiny bit, but not a lot. So just let that be a conversation starter. That's what we mean by the kingdom. And it's the promise of the restoration of all things. So we saw first in the, the fact that God is in secret. It points to an eternal hope which sustains us. And then secondly, it says that he sees in secret. And I said, hold on. because There's a truth for all of us, right? We're here. So when it says he sees in secret, it brings us to a glorious truth for all of us. So I, I hope you hear this. Seeing in secret is the very promise of the gospel of Jesus. When we say gospel, the good news of Jesus, what is the good news of Jesus? It is that God created in perfection, man rebelled and caused separation. God, in his great love and kindness, knew that there must be consequence for that rebellion, but in his great love sent Jesus to, 
to reconcile, to overcome that consequence. Jesus took on our sin, took on God's wrath, and gave us his righteousness. That is the good news of Jesus, right? And so to see that he sees in secret, it speaks the promise of that, that you are invited into that and that God did that work for you. Okay, how? Here we go. So it goes way beyond the idea that God sees everything. That's kind of what you kind of think about as a kid. It's what your parents tell you. Hey, do good because God sees everything you do. True statement, right? but maybe a, a motivator that falls a little short. So it goes way beyond God is always watching. He's more than big brother. He's more than just this removed God. It speaks to the all-encompassing and overwhelming reality of who we are when we are saved in Christ. We've already kind of alluded to this all day long. We've, we've danced around it, so now we are in it. And so first, when we, when we think of those who are in Christ, those who have who have believed and confessed that Jesus is Lord and found reconciliation to God the Father, that restored relationship, first we see a complete change occurs. And we've already said it. But Christ, the Christ follower, those who are in Christ, is totally taken over. He, the, he is transformed. She's made new. There's nothing left undone. Yes, we contend with the flesh. Yes, we continue to sin against God, but we are no longer bound to that, and we are no longer defined by that. Because of the Holy Spirit that is given you and me upon salvation, upon belief, our life, our natural aim is to honor God, please Him, and that we are brought in unity to His desire. And so it is only by our sinful desire that we sometimes still, in our battle of the flesh, that we still stumble and fall. So yes, we, can, we still contend, but it's no longer the natural thing, and it's no longer our identity. Again, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God, which brings us to the next thing of what we're talking about here is that we are brought fully into relationship with God the Father in Christ. Again, new identity. You are without a family, adopted as sons and daughters. No one is excluded from that invitation to that promise. We are, his, we are his at all times. We can't stop being his that he has chosen and called in. We can't. He did the work. He secured it. It's a new identity, just like you can't stop being your, your parent's child, no matter what you do. Even if they disown you, or you disown them, you're still their child. Guess what? God will not disown you. I will never leave nor forsake you. But just to give you a picture, and so when we think about this, that he sees in secret, it is this near, he's transcendent when he is in secret, and he is imminent when he sees in secret. He is there with you at all times. And again, we, we, we hear that, and it sounds like this oppressive thing, but hear it as a loving, relational thing. He is with you. He keeps you. He sustains you. He fights for you. He protects you. We cannot compartmentalize our lives. That's what this leads to. That's what Jesus is speaking to. He's like, hey, don't just do it when people are watching. Or don't just not do it when people are watching. It goes deeper than that. You're made new. You're brought into the family. You're given a new name, a new identity. So you can't shake this. You can't just switch it on and off. You can't just be it sometimes. It is who you are. So he's saying, like, live this out. 
There's no place in our lives that we are not meant to be his image bearers and no place we are not meant to glorify him with our obedient lives. So let me wrap up, coming to the end here, uh, with how all of this comes together for us to actually be able to rightly practice our righteousness in a way that God would say is perfect and is not hypocritical. Our rightly motivated righteousness must be a result of knowing God. Already said it, right? 1 John 2.29 says, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay, so to know God, not just to know about him, but to walk with him, to know him, and for him to know you, that was made possible by belief in Jesus. I'm saying here, like, if you know him, you will express righteousness. And if you see true righteousness expressed, you know that he has, that person has to know God. That's what it's saying here. To know God is to commune with God. We're expanding on some of the concepts we've already built. To know God is to understand that he is always present and he is the only one we're aim, we are to aim to please. And as we already stated, our righteousness is for his sake, so do it for the, his acclaim and none other. We are righteous people because he chose us in Christ and set us apart in the righteousness of Jesus. And he's made us to know him in that. So the righteousness out of relationship that comes out of relationship is our promise and is also the way that we can understand that this call to be perfect as he is perfect. And I think about my kids. And I have Gavin and Brooklyn, five and three. And I mean... In a way, I want them to be perfect. Like I, Amber and I try hard to train and teach them in the ways of the Lord to show them how to be kind, respectful, to prepare them for life. Like, and when I tell them to do something or not to do something, I want them to respond rightly every time. I don't. I don't give them a. a I don't tell them something for no reason. So yeah, I I expect perfection from my kids. I want them to obey every single time. I want them to be perfect. The reality is, with that, they don't obey every time. And yet I love them always. Every night, and it's involuntary, every night I say with Amber, I'm like, man, I love our kids. Like, and it's not routine. Like, it just hits me every night. Like, I just think about something that happened during the day, you know. And, and, and it's not just when they obey. Like, sometimes it's thinking through something I had to work through them with. And it's just beautiful. But I love them always, even when I'm angry, even when I'm frustrated, because they're my children. And sometimes their disobedience must lead to punishment. But guess what? Even that is because I love them. See, because I am their father, Amber's their mother, and we are parents that have good intentions for our kids, albeit imperfect, we have good intentions for our kids, even what seems harsh in the moment at times is for their good. And sometimes our consequence, our, our, our interference in their life is to prevent them from immediate harm or harming others. And like, we like that one. We accept that one when God intervenes in our lives when it's to prevent us from hurting ourselves or hurting others, we accept that. We're like, man, that's for our good or someone else's good. 
We have a hard time when it's just the call to obedience when we don't really see a reason why. Like that blind obedience. Really, when it comes down to just God is worthy. And really what we have to understand is, do you trust the character of God? Can you acknowledge that God is good? Can you acknowledge that his intent is better than yours? Better than you could ever dream up. You, we all see what we think could be better. And we all see where there are times we think God could work in a different way. Do you ever think that you're wiser or you have greater intent than God does? That, that's our answer to the blind obedience, to the willful obedience, just because he is a worthy God, because we trust his character. He is worthy in who he is. And so my kids, just kind of bringing it back to the illustration, there are times when I feel silly giving a consequence over something that is just pretty mundane. But I know in that moment, there is value to them learning to trust my authority because there will be a day, another day, when there is going to be a greater destructive consequence upon them by their actions. Not from me, but by, again, just the destruction of sin and rebellion. And so just learning, if they can just learn to just trust me. Like, I remember my dad used to always say, like, Heath, you know, there's this dad and a son, and the son's planted a tree, and the dad said, Duck! And the kid dropped to the ground. He said, now crawl to me. And the kid crawled. And so my dad's going to love that I'm telling this story. And the kid crawls, and he gets up, and he's like, what, Daddy, what? And he was like, and there was a snake hanging from the branch, and if you wouldn't have obeyed right away, the snake would have bit him. That's how my dad taught me quick obedience. Um, so, but, but again, like, what's our tendency? Why? Why should I duck? I don't see a reason why to duck. Should I duck? Ah, you know, and so, I mean, like... <laughs> That's, so, I mean, but again, like, do you trust the character of God? When he commands you something and you don't understand why, do you say why or do you say, yes, you are good, here's my life? What is your response? Have you experienced the goodness and grace in Christ? Have you went from death to life? Have you went from, from outcast to belonging? Have you went from without hope to filled with eternal hope? How can you question the love of God? How can you question his character? And I get, I don't, I don't mean there's not room for question. I want there to be room for question. I want there to be room for struggle and doubt. Wrestle well, struggle well, but let's fight towards that. So I do want them to be perfect. I want them to obey every time, but there's a greater work at hand in every situation. For you and for me, it's the same. God's greater work, his divine purpose is always in process, always being worked. When he says, I know the plans I have for you, he's saying, I plan to prosper you, not to harm you. He's saying that, hey, listen, your life for me is, is for your good and it's for my glory. When he says all plans work for the good of, the, of those who love him and called according to his purpose, he's saying, hey, listen, my purpose will be carried out in your life. I am sovereign. Trust that. This is not these name it and claim it verses. These are the promise of God's glory being brought in your life. And that is the greatest satisfaction any of us can have. It's what we're created for. So live for the glory of God and his praise instead of the glory of yourself and the praise of mankind. There's no greater cause and there's no greater satisfaction. So there's a promise. It's in Christ. So as we end each, each sermon, we're going to end today just in a time of prayer. Um, and I just want to invite you, if you would like to pray out loud, pray out loud. If you'd like to pray silently, pray silently. If neither one of those are your thing, I invite you to listen hear the hearts of the people of God, or hear as the Lord speaks to you. But pray now, and then in a moment, Travis Janeway will come up and lead us in communion. I'll start us, and then you pray. So God, we love you. 
Lord, I thank you for the call to be perfect as you are, but to know that, again, as we think of, of merit, that the, the righteousness of Christ is what you see in us. When we think of what the perfect life as a Christ follower is, it's a life lived unto you as your son and daughter. And Lord, to know that we ascribe all worth to you with all things, I ascribe all worth to you all things, and Lord, I know my own tendency is to seek the praise of man, but Lord, just wring that out of me, strip it away. Let me be satisfied in nothing less than your praise, your accolade alone, and to see you glorified above all things. God, I pray that we would not compartmentalize our life in any way, knowing that's impossible when our, our understanding is that we are given a new identity in Christ and not just some new activities. God, I pray that we would understand the promise of you, being our, you giving us eternal hope as well as present security and belonging and purpose. So I love you. I surrender all this to you in Jesus' name.